Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're God that uh, wants us to know you, that you didn't leave us uh, to scratch and claw and and try and guess what you were like, but you sent uh, first your word and then you sent the living word, your son, to communicate who you are and will always be. And uh, we thank you for these gospel stories as we look at Matthew here this evening. We'll uh, gain uh, one perspective that you wanted us to have, but uh, we're thankful that we can know the Son and that uh, we can begin our fellowship with him right now uh, and uh, know what he's like. And so we pray uh, that we would understand this book well so that we can better uh, gain a relationship with you and a fellowship with you uh, as we know who you are. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are uh, this evening starting off in the book of Matthew, and uh, we are going to kind of do what we did in our original series with the Old Testament messages, kind of give you some material that's not so much that I may be doing some preaching, though I will kind of force the message of the book at the end in the sense of telling you what uh, the whole goal is, but this is more of so, and I know some of you have done this, is that as you read through the Old Testament, you were using some of the sheets that we had to, to recall some of the areas that we talked about. And uh, it was a help to you to better understand a book. We can sometimes get in a rut if we don't understand certain things. We just read it and we don't understand. And we sometimes just need something to trigger something and go, oh, okay, all right, that, uh, that makes more sense. I never understood that section or why that was there. And hopefully as we go through these different books, uh, some of them very familiar to you, but uh, hopefully uh, there are things here as you go through in your own reading later on, uh, or as you have to answer questions for people that may be asking you questions, uh, that you're at least well enough versed to be able to answer some of the questions uh, that might come up. But uh, we start off with uh, just the very basic thing here again this evening is that, uh, yes, the author is Matthew doesn't state it in the letter. You're not going to find it anywhere, but uh, pretty well attested to uh, as you go through church historians and early uh, church uh, fathers, as they're called. Uh, Matthew is the one that is given credit for this book. I put this that he worked for Rome as a tax collector. There's an irony to that. Okay, uh, You think about uh, the fact of who he's going to write to that his first job and that the Lord called him uh, is really amazing. I mean, to think about this, that he had Matthew the tax collector and in the same group of disciples, Simon the zealot. You know, what's a zealot? Well, a zealot was, if you were a full, you know, full-fledged zealot, uh, you were assassinating Roman officials. So you have someone who works for the Romans and someone who, uh, you know, has leanings towards the fact that he's okay with the the death and the passing of Roman officials. Uh, So to have Matthew, a tax collector, going to write the group that we'll talk about in a second here, um, is uh, pretty amazing that the Lord chose him. I mean, he doesn't work in ways that we uh, think he should. We would have our own patterns and whatever, but the Lord ironically chooses Matthew to write this first book. Matthew's the author. The theme is, as we looked at uh, two weeks ago, uh, is that Jesus is king. 
Okay, uh, it's very clear in this book. Uh, you can read through it and kind of get hints at it, but if you haven't picked up on it, we'll show you reasons why uh, that this is the message of the book. It is uh, written to, and uh, I will put it to this, uh, it's written to Jews. Okay, and as we said, Matthew wrote this book, ironically he turned his back on the Jews by being a tax collector, but yet the Lord chose him to write to the Jews. I always thought that kind of weird because you think about in church uh, history, if you thought there was ever a person that should have been an apostle to the Jews, it would have been Paul. He was well-versed in all of their laws and their doctrines. He was zealous for the Hebrew faith. You figure he would be the one of the Jews, and you look at what the Lord did. The Lord said, you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so the glory is given to the Lord for being able to use a book like this. Now, you see, you say, why would this first book be one that would be written to Jews? And that's because the Jews would have been looking for someone like Jesus. The rest of the world may not have been, they may not have understood this. The Jews would have been. Um, in fact, as you look at uh, your Bible and you go through the whole of the Old Testament, uh, your last book in your Old Testament is actually uh, the last book chronologically. Okay? It's, it's the last book before there's 400 years of silence. And I just want you to go back a page. If you're in Matthew, go back to the book of Malachi and just see how this book closes off. Because if you're Jews, you're told there's another part of the story coming. I mean, all the prophecies would have done this. But you, you close off this book and it kind of says, okay, there's something or someone who's coming. You see in verse uh, number 5 of chapter 4 of Malachi, it says this, behold, okay, and that word, whenever you see behold, it's pay attention that's what that means. It's not just a filler word. But it says this, okay, pay attention to this. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming uh, of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and to the children, uh, the, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, you kind of end the Old Testament on a down note. I'm going to strike the earth with a curse, 400 years of silence. But, but the Jews at least understood there was someone coming that would be like Elijah, and that he's coming before the Lord shows up. They would have understood that. So in their own culture and what they're doing, they're looking for this. And you see this especially when uh, John the Baptist comes on the scene and if anybody's like John the Baptist or Elijah, it's John the Baptist. He dresses like them. He eats like him. He's kind of pronouncing the same kind of message of judgment that Elijah seemed to preach. And they're going, are you Elijah? Or are you the Messiah who's supposed to come? Are you the Christ? So there's this anticipation for the Jews to say, we're looking for someone. Malachi tells us that we ought to be on the lookout for Elijah, and we ought to be on the lookout for the Lord, because he's coming after Elijah. So already in their social consciousness as a society, they're looking for someone. So this first gospel is, is written to address Jews to let them know uh, that their king, their Messiah, has come. 
And uh, for them, that was the, the very important issue for them to get settled. The time that this is written, we really don't know. Our best guess is between 50 and 70 AD. You say, why 70 AD? Uh, 70 AD was when the temple was destroyed. And there's no indicating in the writing of this gospel that there was a destroyed temple. Uh, so there, there is not that uh, element that's there. So we say it's somewhere in that time frame. Uh, you would figure that a gospel to the Jews would be written before they got dispersed by the Romans at the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, so I, I tend to go within my own thinking of where this would have uh, shown up exactly a time frame, uh, probably closer to 50 AD than 70 AD. Uh, and uh, that's uh, where I would put this. So you say, what are the important features? Uh, there's really only three things that we're going to talk about under these features, but let's just simply start with this. Important features. There is an emphasis on a Jewish and a kingly theme. I want you to look at Matthew 1 and verse 1. And for you, it might be insignificant and you could care less because when you start looking at stuff like this, it's a genealogy and you're like, oh, you know. I had a, an aunt, if I'm in New England, it's how I'd say it, but I had an aunt that was well interested in family history. And so we would go to her house and we would find out who was connected to who and who was connected to who. And you're like, I have no idea who these people are. As a five-year-old, I could care less. I'm like, well, you know, I'm thinking, you know, when's the next meal and, and those type of things. And you're telling me about, you know, Uncle Jeb or somebody like that that lived over here and we think he did this and he might have been related to this person over here. And you're, okay. Uh, for us, uh, starting off the book of Matthew with a genealogy is a disaster. You don't start off a book with a genealogy in modern culture because uh, most people within the first few pages of reading a book are like, oh, not reading this. Well, you start off with a genealogy and you're just like, but Jewish culture, genealogy was very important. In fact, when a child was born, what would you do? You would bring your child to the temple and they would be recorded there. In fact, long family lines were there and you could have gone and looked at Jesus' genealogy and gone, okay, the temple records the fact that he's a son of David. Do you realize there was never a dispute uh, with the Pharisees that they said, oh, you're not a son of David? They questioned the fact whether he was a son of God, never a son of David. You go, why is that? Because the temple would have recorded that information. And genealogy is very important to the Jews, and so when you start off this book, you're, you're getting this right up front, you're getting the layout of who he is, who he's related to, what tribe he's from, but there's an emphasis on this genealogy, and you find it in verse 1. Okay, it says this, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now you go, okay, why is that important as you go through all of that? Well, uh, three things there. It sounds like Genesis. Okay, 
The way that you break up the book of Genesis is not through the 50 chapters. If you're reading it the way the Hebrews would have, you would have started with in the beginning and read that first story that starts all the way to Genesis 2 and verse 3. And then in Genesis 2, 4, it says this, these are the generations of. And what you do is you see what happens. And then you go later on in the book and you see this statement, these are the generations of so-and-so, and you see what their descendants do. The Jews reading this would have gone, oh, hey, this, this sounds like the book of Genesis. The chapter headings that they had there, the, the 10 different times where it says these are the generations of, well, here you have the generation uh, of Jesus Christ. So for them, they're going, book of Genesis. And then you say, it speaks to the first Jew. Okay, Abraham. Okay, who's the first one to start off the Jewish line? Abraham. So is he related to Abraham? He is. And this is one who is related to David. And you can figure it out. He's related to David as you look at the genealogy in Luke. It's slightly different. Uh, Many people think the one in Luke is uh, the line through Mary. And then you have the line here through Joseph, the adopted father. Um, And uh, so you have just right up front, people reading this book, opening it up. the, The major questions are answered right in the first verse of the genealogy. This is a book of beginnings. It's like the the Old Testament start. We've got this book, Matthew. It's the New Testament start. You've got a person who is a Jew, so he is one who can possibly fulfill uh, all the things that the Jews are, are needing. And he is not just any Jew. He's from the tribe of Judah, and he's a descendant of David. So right up front, you're faced with the fact of opening up this book and finding out that you have someone who is a Jew, who's a king, very important to the Jews. So for us, in looking at this, the the element that you say is the Jewish side of the book. As you read through the book of Matthew, what you're going to find is something that comes up quite often again and again, and it's a phrase like this, as it was written, or it was prophesied by fact as you go through you're going to find old testament quotations there's 44 of them okay this is more old testament quotations than the rest of the gospels combined okay so if you go through mark luke and john and take all the quotes that are from the old testament in those gospels you'll find that they are less than what you find in the book of matthew So obviously there's a looking back at the Old Testament, and if you look at the books that are referenced, you have at least half of the books of the Old Testament are quoted from. So it's it's not just a small series of books or just the book of Isaiah or something like that. No, it's a whole bunch of the books of the Old Testament that are being quoted. And so that would have been a hint, okay, you have an Old Testament understanding already. You already have some understanding of the Old Testament. And as you look at it, there's at least 15 different Old Testament characters referenced. Okay, not just merely in this genealogy, but as you go through and the stories that are told, you're you're hearing different people from the Old Testament that are just brought up, and they're brought up with no explanation. Okay, if the book was being written for a Roman audience, you oftentimes, as we will get to a book that was written for a Roman audience uh, and a book that was written for a Greek audience, there were explanations given. Now, who was this person? Why is this important? That type of thing. But here you just have these quotes, okay, this is from the Old Testament. We're showing you this to be the case, and you have these Old Testament characters. Um, 
You get into the, the, the story itself and you start reading through in the first sermon that is recorded in the book of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. And you get in the Sermon on the Mount, it has the Beatitudes to start off with. And then you get into this uh, chapter 5 where there's this discussion. Ye have heard it said of old time. Okay, you've heard said this in your culture over and over again. And so there are some Old Testament quotes there, but what sometimes he does is he quotes what the people misquoted from the Old Testament. You've heard it said this way, but I'm telling you that's not quite right. They've misquoted the Old Testament. But you have this repeated refrain over and over again. You've heard this. Where would they heard it? They would have heard it in the synagogues, read uh, synagogue service. They would have pulled out a big scroll and they would have read from this because you didn't have copies of Scripture. And then someone would get up and explain their commentary on that and then uh, that would be the, the end of your service. So you have the Lord referring to this. So that kind of points to the fact that this may have been a Jewish book. Uh, have you not read? That question seven times throughout the whole of the book of Matthew. It's, have you not read? Do, do you not have your Old Testament scriptures? Have you, have you not heard this? And, and, and so you have this going on. There's a familiarity of Old Testament customs and prophecies. Okay, there's an expectation that you know your Old Testament and you know Jewish culture because there's things that happen in the book. And for us, especially in our modern culture, you're like, but you look at the Old Testament and you go, oh, okay, this has to deal with the sacrificial system, okay, you know. Oh, this has something to do with the priestly, oh, okay, I, you know, I understand that. Uh, Jews would have picked up on this immediately. You know, we, we know what he's talking about here, this is not strange to us, it's not strange information, uh, and so you have a lot of customs and prophecies. And then there's one other thing that is kind of a, a thing that would hint at the fact that this is a book written for Jews. And we'll, we'll get we won't get technical here, but as you go through and you read in this book, you'll find this statement, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Now, five times it talks about the kingdom of God, but in general, it's the kingdom of heaven. You go to the other three gospels and the same stories are being told. And there the story is kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to the kingdom of God. And you're going, well, why in the book of Matthew would there have been this distinction where you have kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew and the other gospels, it says kingdom of God. It goes back to the thinking of the Jews where it says uh, in the third commandment, the third one? I'm trying to remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? No, yeah, it's the third one. Uh, where it says uh, this about the name of God. You're not to take the name of God in vain, empty way. And so there were some in the Jewish culture that, that were, would not say the name of God so as not to break that law. They came up with ways to refer to God, and so they uh, kind of mixed words and did some things like that to, to, to say the name of God without really saying it. But there, there may be, and the best explanation we have of this is that he is writing to Jews who for them to say the name of God would have been upsetting to them. 
Now, there are some in recent years that are of dispensational ilk that they come and say, well, there's a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And you're like, eh, no. There's no indicator in the Gospels that there's a difference between the two. But this difference between the kingdom of heaven being used in the book of Matthew rather than the kingdom of God, most people suggest the fact that it may very well have been to try and work with Jews that might be a little bit more upset hearing the name of God over and over again. Okay. So uh, that would point to the fact that this is a Jewish book. Okay, so that's the, the one highlight. You just kind of go through this and you see all these things and it's kind of, go, okay, you, you've got a Jewish audience that is concerned about certain things. On the other side, you have this kingly element. Okay, um, and as you read through this book, you'll find the word king or kingdom 74 times. You can't get away from it. Page after page after page after page after page, you're confronted with the fact that there is something about a king here. Kingdom and king and royalty, the, the words are there. Sometimes it's referring to foreign kings, but many times it's referring to something that Jesus is establishing or is, he is being referred to as a king. And you say, well, okay, is this you know, something that is obvious in the book? Well, you have the, the second line there is this. Your book starts here with a confrontation between a worldly king and the king of kings. Okay, you have the story about the birth of uh, Jesus in chapter one, but the next story is that they go to Bethlehem and there's this Herod the Great who is known to the world as being one of the greater monarchs, though a very horrible person. And all of a sudden, you have these ambassadors that come from a foreign land. You know, they call them three kings. They aren't referred to as three kings in your Bible. Okay, so, you know, where did they get that from? Not going to get into it. Uh, they're known as wise men, magi. And they're ambassadors, and they're coming with gifts, like an ambassador, to give gifts to the king of the Jew, who's, Jews who's just been born. And you have this story where, okay, they come and find this king and they worship, they bow the knee before him and they give him gifts. That's the first story about Jesus with him involved in it, but he's not really involved. You have a king of the world, the king of kings with ambassadors coming to do a, a obeisance, a worship to him. And then you get to the end of the book, and there's this declaration of a king going, okay, you're going to go out and be what? Ambassadors for me. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, and this is something that you're supposed to do, and they're teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, okay? I'm the one giving you the authority, even unto the end of the world, it says there, but the word world there is the, the word that's oftentimes translated uh, your, your, uh, to the end of the age. Okay, I'm with you to the end of time. Okay, this is your commission. And so you, you start the book, king of kings, ambassadors, wise men, coming to see the king of the Jews, and at the end you have this statement of a king going, go out and tell my message. You declare it. You don't have to make anything up that's what a, a herald is supposed to do an ambassador is supposed to do they don't make up their own message 
and you're supposed to go out and do this. So uh, you see this kind of through the whole book. But the other thing that you have that is unique to the book of Matthew is that you have seven lengthy discourses. Okay, you know, you think about today's culture when you have a politician speak, you know, most of the time you don't pay attention to the words, but it used to be uh, that you would have like newspapers. When a person would give a speech and the next day you would read the whole speech written out so you could hear what the politician said. Nowadays we don't have to do that because we can see it and hear it uh, and so we can get it that way. But uh, there is an interest in what world leaders have to say. It's the same for today. Well, what Matthew does is that he takes seven lengthy discussions and most of them are unique though there's some elements in other of the Gospels that are unique to the book of Matthew. And you start off with a Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is just simply, as you go through with the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes, you know, the things that the world look at and go, okay, blessed is the peacemaker, and blessed are they that... um, when you read that, it's, it's talking about here's the enviable condition of individuals that are a part of the kingdom. These are individuals who have humbled themselves and they've hungered and thirsted after righteousness. And they're the type of person who does actually see God. And then there's this transformation. These are the type of people who are the ones who are the peacemakers. See, what you have in the Beatitudes is you want to be a part of this kingdom, here's the guidelines on how to get in. Okay, you want to be a citizen of this kingdom? There it is. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is this discussion of what you're supposed to be doing in the kingdom. Now, the kingdom is not right now. Can we just understand that? Do we, do we understand the kingdom hasn't been set up yet? But we're citizens of the kingdom. Okay, when that kingdom gets set up, when the Lord comes here to earth, we have citizenship to that kingdom. We're a part of it. And what is a person that's a part of it supposed to be doing? How are they supposed to look? Can we start exemplifying that kind of activity right now? The answer is yeah, we can. And so when it talks through here, uh, he says, okay, what does it come when it, what does it mean when it comes to morality of a citizen who's a part of the kingdom of heaven? Well, uh, the statement of old time was this, that uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, but the Lord says this. I'm going to clarify it and make it even more clear. It's not just the act, the physical act of adultery. It's if it goes on in your heart, that shouldn't be going on which indicates the fact that there's an inward transformation that's taken place. A person who's a part of the kingdom has something that has gone on in their heart so that they can actually not sin, they can battle sin in their heart. And you, you get to chapter 6, what's it like for a person who is uh, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? How is he going to do uh, his worship and his giving and his praying? Is he going to worry about the things of this life? The answer is no, because he realizes this stuff's not permanent. 
This is why you're told uh, not to uh, take thought for certain things. Don't be anxious about certain things. And don't make money your master. You can't serve two masters, so who are you going to serve? Well, you're going to serve God. And then it ends with this statement, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. All the things that you need, I'll take care of them here. But you look forward to being a part of something someday. And uh, so you go through all of this. This is just basically a major statement of the Lord. This is how you enter into my, my kingdom. And this is how you should act if you are a person who claims to be a part of my kingdom. And this is what you should look like. And then you have the ending story of the wise man and the foolish man building their houses on foundations. And the person who doesn't build their foundation on what has just been previously discussed is going to find that their house is well, flattened, not permanent. So it starts with the Sermon on the Mount, and so it's kind of this, and, and you go to Matthew 5, and it starts up this, and look at this, and seeing the multitudes, verse 1, he went up into a mountain. So he's, he is sitting at the mountaintop speaking down to people like you would expect a king to do. So even with the details of the setting, it just kind of points to this. Um, you see, uh, in chapter 10, uh, all of chapter 10, is Jesus telling his disciples, you're going out into the world, you're being my ambassadors, I'm sending you out two by two, and here's what you're going to do as my ambassadors. And so he tells them what's going to happen to them, and that they need to be ready for certain things and certain events. So you have the instructions to the 12. You have a lengthy section, though there's a section like this that's very similar to it in the book of Luke, but Matthew is much expanded where Jesus tells seven parables and in two of the parables he actually gives explanations and the most of the parables start this way the kingdom of heaven is like you might say the kingdom of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is similar to something and he's explaining what the kingdom of heaven's like seven different parables two of them he explains and the rest of them we're left to try and just figure out in the context and what Jesus previously said, what is he meaning by that parable? Remember this, that parables, as you go through your New Testament, weren't designed to explain things. You're like, oh, wait, wait, it's supposed to explain things. No, the Lord, when you read in Matthew chapter 13, he's doing this to hide the message from certain people. You know, seeing they will not see, and hearing they will not hear, and knowing they will not understand. And he's quoting from the book of Isaiah that the Lord, because it's at that point in Matthew chapter 13 that people have already rejected Jesus and said, oh, he's just doing this by the power of Beelzebub. They've already decided in their own heart he's not the Messiah, he's not who they should be looking for. And so he's telling a message that if people are interested, he's giving explanations, which he does to his disciples but the message is hidden. Now, sometimes he tells parables as you get to chapter, oh, I can't remember which chapter it is, but uh, he tells a parable, and the Pharisees that are standing there realize, hey, I think that was about us, you know, and they get angry about it, but they figure it out, um, and uh, they do that. Um, Chapters 18, uh, the whole chapter there is basically talking about what it is to live in the kingdom. You don't lie, you don't do certain things. I mean, it's just an explanation of how does a citizen of the kingdom of heaven act. 
Uh, Then you have chapter 23, a denunciation and a declaration of judgment. Woe unto you, Pharisees. And he goes through and talks about the fact that you're like whited sepulchers, but you're filled with dead men's bones in your heart. You're like well-cleaned glasses, but then you look inside and nothing's been cleaned out on the inside. You're like a generation of vipers and you, you go and you make a disciple of yours and you put a burden on them that no person can bear. Woe unto you. When that word statement of woe is, it's a pronunciation of judgment. You have a king here going, you Pharisees have done more damage to the kingdom of God than anyone else. You have kept people out by your actions. And you should have been the ones who would have said, hey, this is the one you need. And so you have a pronunciation of judgment and you go, who has the right to judge? A king. King has this. And, and this is the only section that really has this denunciation of the Pharisees is in here in the book of Matthew. The Olivet Discourse. Now Luke has a little bit of this. So does Mark. But uh, by far the lengthiest discussion uh, of the Lord and end time events. You even find in the middle of this where he talks about the abomination and desolation. You're going, where would they have known that from? Well, it's the one that Daniel talked about. When you see that there, you need to flee to the mountains. And so he talks about end time events and what it's going to be like. I add this one at the very end. It's not lengthy, but it's the closing statement. It's a great commission. This is how the book ends. It ends with that statement, book closed. So the king has given orders for you right now. Go out, make disciples, baptizing them, get them saved, and then teaching them to observe that sanctification, uh, help them grow in Christ. Uh, And so you have these things, but as you look in the book, a lot of red, if you have a red letter edition there, and lengthy statements. We said, in contrast, Mark, as we get there, you're not going to find a whole lot of that red lettering. And if there are statements, they're very short and brief. In this book, the king gets to speak, okay? And he makes declarations and statements. And so this is uh, one of the things that points to this book. And, and so sometimes it's just good to go through and realize, okay, as I'm reading through Matthew, that's what it's doing. Now, having said all this, the other thing that we have to be aware of is the arrangement of the book. Oops, I gave you everything once. Ah. Um, the arrangement of the book of Matthew is mainly topical and not chronological, You go, well, it starts with genealogy and the birth of Jesus. Okay. And it talks about the beginning of his ministry with John the Baptist who's going out in front of him in chapter 4. Chapter 5 is not the next thing that happens. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is probably something that happens towards the middle or the end of Jesus' ministry. Um, and so as you look at the book, sometimes you're, you're kind of going, is this the chronological order of these things? And the answer is, no, it's not. In fact, I will give you the example. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 4. And if I have this right, I, I'm going to... get this, when you read the story of the temptation here, 
in Matthew chapter 4, it's in a different order than what you find it in Luke chapter 4. In this temptation, it has the story that happens first in all of them. It's the one of changing the stones into bread. But this account has the second thing as being uh, the Lord being high and lifted up on the temple and the devil saying, well, cast yourself off and that doesn't happen. What's the third one here? Which is, a, which is appropriate for the whole of the book. Satan takes him up to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says this, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of these kingdoms. Now that's the issue of the book. Now that's not the order of the temptation. We're given that in Luke. It's in a different order. This story is giving us the topical order and giving us the story in such a way that really the main issue for, for Matthew is this, is that Jesus doesn't shortcut in getting the kingdoms of the world. He could have. And you say, what would happen then? Disaster. But he wasn't tempted by this because he can't be tempted, though he is tempted. And so the, the last one here, it's not in chronological order it's actually in topical order even in that story so as you go through granted you get to the end and the story of jesus death is at the end but the stuff in between it may not necessarily be in order in fact as you go through chapters uh eight and nine all of a sudden you have 10 miracles given to you all at once and some of them were at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and some of them were at the end of his ministry, but what he's just simply showing is, hey, this king's got power. He's got strength to do all of these things, and it just kind of lays one right after another, and you see the power of the king in all these miracles, 10 of them in a very short, compact set of material, but it's not necessarily that that's when it happened. It's over a long spread of time, so understand that as you read the book of Matthew. Now, there's other of the Gospels that are very orderly when it comes to time frame and everything else. Matthew's got a topic. He wants these people to see that Jesus is king. So we close with this. At the end of uh, going through the book of Matthew, it's this, is that this Gospel was designed to lay out that Jesus is king. Okay? So when you have a king, how do you act towards a king? You're going to have to humble yourself. You know, the meek inherit the earth. Well, what does it mean? The meek may have strength and abilities, but they humble themselves. Okay. And live as one who's loyal to the king, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone can be part of this kingdom as seen in the kingly genealogy, which includes women and in some cases sinful women. We didn't talk about this, but when you go through that genealogy, it gives all sorts of men. It gives you 14 generations, uh, three generations, or excuse me, three sets of 14 generations of people. But then in the midst of this, you have just this, normally when you had genealogies, it would only have men's names in the Jewish culture. Father's names. And all of a sudden you have inserted here Tamar. You're going, Tamar, yeah, the, the one who had uh, children by her father-in-law. And you have Rahab mentioned. And Ruth. 
sort of mentioned. And you go through and you're going, these aren't people known for, you know, initially their, their morality. But God includes women in this and he includes sinful women, which would have been groundbreaking to some of the Jewish culture that God would do this. And he has it right in the genealogy where he's really telling them anyone can be part of the kingdom. Because we have people who are in the kingly line that you would never expect to be in the kingly line, and they are. So if you think, I can't be a part of this kingdom, I can't be uh, one who is a loyal subject of the king because I'm not of a certain creed or people. I mean, you think of Tamar who's mentioned, you have Rahab who's you know, outside the, the nation of Israel as a Moabite. She's not a Jew, yet she's in the kingly line. Uh, it, it hints right at the beginning that anybody can be a part of this kingdom. Okay, The requirements are that you're going to humble yourself before this king. There are opponents to this kingdom, such as Herod and the Pharisees. And it's this, at the end, the kingdom is not yet set up, but one day the king will rule. That's what the Olivet Discourse is saying, stating to you, is that he is going to come and rule and reign, and all the kingdoms of the world are going to gather themselves, and he's still going to rule and reign. So you get to the end of the book and you go, okay, is this Jesus my king? And you say, well, what, what is the requirements of these ambassadors as they go out and tell the message? That you believe on him and that you live like he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. That you live like what he said. And so you finish this book off and you kind of go, okay, this is a great opening book for Jews, but it's one that I as a Gentile can read and go, am I a part of this kingdom? I can be part of it. And have I humbled myself and put myself under this king? And am I living like one who is a part of that kingdom? Though the kingdom is not set up yet. It will be one day. So uh, good book, good start, important connect point between the Old and the New Testament. It's the pivot book to get you into the New Testament uh, from Jewish, mainly Jewish uh, things in the Old Testament uh, to the New Testament, which is uh, obviously you can see very clearly for all people. And so it's a good book of transition. Lord, we thank you for allowing Jesus to come to this world. May we be individuals who live like people who are, well, having you as our king that we've put our, uh, humbled ourselves before you and look and sought after a righteousness that you alone can give, which it came in your son, who's also the king of this book, and that you've given us that. And so I trust that uh, those in this room know Jesus as their savior. But Lord, the, the question could be had for us here this evening, are we living like we have you as king? And so uh, may we do that examination of our own heart in a message of a book like this. Are we living like we have one who has the right to tell us how to live, how we should go about our, our daily business and activities, and that we're doing those things? Not that it's earning us anything, but it's just showing that we're loyal citizens, that we have faith in you, that we're faithful to you because you are our king. So Lord, let us live that way in a way that reflects who you are and one day we look forward to being in your kingdom, enjoying your glory and seeing your full splendor. 
And we praise you and the Son who's made it possible. Amen.